0: Hey, welcome to part seven of Skeptics' Welcome, the Problem of the Bible. And before I get too far into this message this morning, I want to establish a very critical point with you all this morning, and that is this. I love the Bible. Absolutely, I love the Bible. I cherish the Bible. I have been transformed and changed by the Bible. But by the end of this message, you may think, does Ross really value the Bible? Does he really care about the Bible? Does he really think it's that important? And the answer that I want you to hear right now is... Yes, I do, okay? Yes, 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 absolutely. And I think we all should love the Bible, and I think we all should cherish the Bible. In fact, um, the New Testament, reading the New Testament, is actually what brought me to become a follower of Jesus. When I was in middle school, I started having all these questions about, why am I a moral person? You know, why do I think that there is right and wrong? Why do I have concern for justice issues? Why do I feel broken? Why do I feel guilty? Why do I feel shame when I do certain things? Why do I have this conscience bearing down on me, right? Universal experiences, we've, we've all had these, so we all try to wrestle with them and figure them out. And so what do I do? I turn to religious texts. I start reading the Quran. I start reading Buddhist texts. I start reading all these religious texts, trying to find an answer as to why I feel this way. Why do I struggle with what's going to happen when I die, the afterlife issues, all these kind of things. And I eventually you know, pick up the New Testament, and I start reading the words of Jesus. And unlike any other text that I'd ever read, it pierces me. It cuts through all my doubt and all my concerns and all my frustrations and, and, uh, and thinking on, on all these issues. And it answers questions and it touches me and it pierces me in a way that no, nothing else ever ever did in all my exploration. And so I'm very indebted to the Bible. It wasn't the church, it wasn't Christian friends that brought me to become a follower of Jesus. It was reading the actual words of Jesus and what he taught and what he did. It was the Bible that I just could not put down, that I devoured night after night after night, that I just could not put down, that eventually brought me to become a follower of Jesus. And I bet that there are people here who have similar stories, similar stories about how the Bible has cut you through to the, to the heart as well, has cut through all of your doubt and skepticism and, and questioning and, 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 you know, searching for the answers to the meaning of the universe and whatnot, that that you have similar stories, you know, how the Bible has spoken to you. It cuts through fear and guilt and lies and shame and self-pity and hatred and prevents, prevents, Before breaking beggars, grace and mercy and and deliverance and restoration and love. It's just, it's such an incredible text. And so I love the Bible. I hope you love the Bible. If you do not love the Bible currently, I hope that you will become a lover of the Bible. And that means getting to know the Bible and read the Bible. And so to help you with that this summer, we are offering a 90-day Bible challenge. Read the entire New Testament this summer because that is going to actually equip you as we head into the fall for some exciting things that will be happening this fall. But the 90-day challenge would have you read the entirety of the New Testament over the summer from June 1st to September 2nd. You even have some skip days in there if you can't, or some makeup days, whatever you want to call them. Um, Two to four chapters a day, 10 to 15 minutes is all, and you'll read the entirety of the New Testament. There are actual guides available at both entrances. Um, As you leave, if you would like to pick one of those up and join us beginning June 1st, we will be discussing more of this in the next coming weeks. But wouldn't it be great if the whole whole church body was all reading the New Testament together? We could dialogue about it and pray about it together. I think it would be really, really sweet. So join us, take up that challenge as uh, you head into your summer. Now here's the thing. For some of us, the Bible is not a problem. The, the Bible isn't a problem for me, right? It's a source of encouragement. It's a source of life. It's a, it's a source of great hope. For a lot of us, the Bible is not a problem. But for a lot of people, belief and trust in the Bible is the activity of a foolish person. Some people would be like, "How could you ever believe in the Bible and what the Bible has to say?" I can't believe they'll point out how the Bible has apparent contradictions and inconsistencies, and and how the God presented in the Bible is just a moral monster. All the things he tells the Israelites to do to other people is just horrible. How could you follow a God like this? You know, they'll say they'll say that it's full of fairy tales and miracles, and all these are nothing short of legends. And that Jesus, you know presented as a, as a deity was something that Constantine developed in 325 to justify his treatment of the Romans. They'll say that the Bible is a cobble collection of 66 books strung together by numerous offers over a thousand years, and it simply cannot be trusted as reliable history, and certainly cannot be reliable is for, for any spiritual growth or spiritual transformation. And then some people will point out how the Bible we have isn't even telling the whole story, how there's all these other additional texts that we never talk about, that we shove aside and we, and we, and we throw the blanket over because we're ashamed of them, they'll say. Whole other stories filling in gaps about who Jesus really was and what Jesus really did. And for some people, these pokings and these proddings are enough to derail them altogether. To convince them that, yes, the Bible is a foolish man's task. Reading the Bible is a foolish person's task. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with the problem of the Bible this morning? We have this book that we believe is the authoritative word of God. And so part of the challenge is figuring out what that means. You know, what does it mean that the Bible is the authoritative word of God? See, a lot of people just think the Bible fell down from the sky. a you know, gold-plated text and all just fell down from the sky that, that God imparted on humanity this book of His wisdom and His commands. But humans mediated God's voice through writing it. And any time you have fallible humans claiming that they are writing infallible texts, and that these texts then need to be rewritten and copied and rewritten and copied and translated and copied and interpreted and copied and all these generation after generation, you're going to have controversy. People are going to find problems with it. If human hands did the writing, then how do we know that there weren't any errors? And how do we know that they didn't insert legends? How do we know that the scribes didn't just have bad handwriting? I mean, I, I wrote Emily a Mother's Day card this morning, and she had to hire a professional scribe to translate exactly what I wrote And Like, how do we know that these people just didn't really have really bad handwriting, and what they actually, you know, decided was the were the words that were actually what the original authors meant? Like, how do you determine that? How do we know that what they communicated is what is actually true in God's word to humanity? Problematic, don't you think? These are a lot of great questions. And I may not answer them all in the depth that you want to answer this morning, but I have, you know, thirty minutes <laughs> to figure this out. Let's start here though. In 1947, a farmer boy had lost his goat. He was uh circling around the Dead Sea looking for this goat, and so he he thought maybe, hey, there's all these caves around here. Maybe my goat fell into a cave, and so he starts throwing rocks into random caves. And in one of these caves he hears a crash there was a rock up there here's a crash he had broken something obviously and so he went up and to investigate what it was he discovered that he had actually broken a clay jar and there were several other clay jars within this cave and he thought that hey i have hit the jackpot i have found buried treasure but he cracked open he pulled the the clay shards away and what does he find the dead sea scrolls what have we come to known as the dead sea scrolls a bunch of paper oh sweet great a bunch of paper right they eventually found uh, out of eleven caves, eleven hundred different manuscripts. The entirety of the Old Testament was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. At least portions of the entirety of the Old Testament was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, up until this time, the oldest preserved Old Testament was from 935 AD. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it jumped that back a thousand years in history to all the way to the third century BC. They now had a almost a nearly complete Old Testament from a from the third century before christ so we have one in 935 we have one in third century bc well scholars came together and thought hey we should compare we should see how accurate our version of the the nine the 935 ad text of the old testament is and so they came to do this and they realized that they were virtually identical the only differences were spelling variations of proper names that's really the only difference. A thousand years of translating and retranslating and copying and recopying and generation after generation doing this discover that there were only differences in the spelling of proper names. Now, this doesn't prove that the Bible is reliable, but it does indicate, I think, a great confidence that the text that we have as our scripture is the accurate text of the original version. That over a thousand years they were able to translate and translate well. Well, fine, someone might say, but how does this account for all the fairy tales and the legends and the, you know, the, the children's stories in the, the Bible? All these things that seem like miracles that we just can't believe in. Jesus rising from the dead, are we, are we really supposed to believe that happened? So do you guys remember 9-11? I don't even have to tell you what 9-11 is. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I can just say 9-11. You guys know what I'm talking about? 9-11. You guys remember where you were on 9-11. Do you guys remember where you were when you saw or where you heard that planes had crashed in to the two towers in New York City? Man, w- isn't this day just engraved into our memory? Absolutely. I think it is for all of us. Some m- moments in history have that kind of power that we'll never forget where we were and what we were doing when it happened. And so I remember this well. I was in a class, uh, sitting in college, uh, a class called Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I was studying um, the, these, these, great, um, these great men within America's history and... Um, And someone comes in the room and they says, Hey, you gotta turn a TV on. Get out of this class. You know, ditch the class, you gotta go find a lobby and turn a TV on. So we all did. We we got up, we went and and found a lobby with a TV. We turned the TV on just in time to see that second plane crash into that tower. Uh, Shortly after that, you guys probably remember that a third plane flew into the Pentagon. Eventually a fourth plane crashed into a field in Somerset County, just on the other side of this state, actually. And then do you guys remember how that fifth plane took off and it crashed into the White House in Washington D.C.? Do you guys remember how that happened? Totally obliterated the White House. No. Come on, guys, give me, give me something here, okay? No, no, no I could have swore that happened. Didn't it happen? Was that just? I just made that up. Why, why? Why are you so convinced that it didn't happen? Nobody has ever mentioned it. You didn't see it on any live broadcasts. You were there watching it all. You remember exactly where you were on that day. You remember that it is engraved. An event like that is engraved into your memory. Of course you would have known if there was a fifth plane that crashed into the White House. You can call BS on that day any day of the week because you know exactly what happened on that day. I don't want to make light of this horrible situation in our country, but I think it does prove a point that 17 years ago, Something happened so profoundly in our country that we all remember exactly where we were when we heard about it, where we watched it happen. And here's the thing, 17 years then after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul, an apostle of Christ, comes and he writes a letter to Galatia. And the first thing that he tells this church of Galatians is that I am an apostle of Jesus, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, by the way. Wait, 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 wait. Raised him from the dead? What are you talking about? I would have remembered. I would have heard about this. Something like that just doesn't happen every day. That would have been ingrained into my memory, engraved into the very stitches of my mind. Like, come on, you can't write stuff like this if it didn't happen. People would call your BS any day of the week. They would say, that didn't actually happen. What are you talking about, Jesus raised from the dead? We all would have known if that would have happened. Don't you remember? They would have denied that it ever happened. See, the New Testament wasn't written 300 years after the events, or 200 years, not even 100 years after the events took place. The entirety of the New Testament was written within the middle to the late first century where those who experienced the events were still alive to verify its accuracy. And so, you see, legends can't develop while the people who experienced the events are still alive. It just can't happen. Because those alive would call BS, right? They would dismiss anything and deny that it ever happened. Well, some might continue, what about all those other Gospels you know, that claim that Jesus had a wife? What about those other stories that claim that Jesus had children? What about that story in the secret Gospel of Mark that when you know, Jesus was a little boy and he was splashed by his friend while they were playing you know, in, in, in the park and, uh, and Jesus looks at him and puts a finger at him and zaps him and turns him to dust? What about that story? What about that Jesus? How come we don't read about all that crazy stuff and all that weird stuff Jesus ever did? What do you do with all those texts? So in 1945, two brothers were digging for fertilizer in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, when they uncovered earthen jars. And of course, they thought, hey, I've hit buried treasure. And what was inside those clay jars? A bunch of paper, a bunch of scrolls. They had covered what was known as the Gnostic Library of Nag Hammadi. The Gospels were titled the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, the the Secret Gospel of Mark, and so on and so on. They were titled to those people who had associations with Jesus, but... These texts weren't written until the third and fourth, fourth centuries, two to three hundred years after Jesus. Beyond this, the main reason they are not considered as part of the scriptural text is because they are agnostic in nature. And you need to know that almost nearly every New Testament book at some point discusses the, the, the challenge of Gnosticism and warns against Gnosticism. Uh, Colossians, for instance, in its entirety, is almost a, a book warning the Colossians against Gnostic teaching. 1 John is, in its entirety, almost a book warning against Gnostic teaching. All of the Gnostic Gospels are completely detached from Jewish scriptures. They looked at the Old Testament, they saw that moral monster, and they said, we cannot follow that God, and so they separated this New Testament from the Old Testament. They created this new Jesus that was different and better than they, what they thought was the Old Testament version. Uh, they, they tell a story of a figure who imparts secret, hidden wisdom to those close to him so that they can perc- perceive a new truth and be saved by this truth, right? There's, there's some magic incantation that only some people know that you receive by knowledge, which is what Gnostic means in the Greek language. You get this special knowledge, and if you can recite this special knowledge, then you can be saved by the special knowledge. And in that salvation is an escape from the slavery to the body that you're in, this material world that is so horrible and corrupt. You'll be, a, you'll be released from it to live as a, as a spiritual being for the rest of all eternity. And the reason that these were never accepted within the canon of Scripture is a bigger discussion than what we have time for, but really quickly. First, they didn't fit into the big, grand narrative of Scripture. Right? The Bible tells one story from, from Genesis to Revelation. But these don't tell that story. They don't fit into that story. Second, they didn't have apost- apostolic origin. So even though they claim to be apostolic in nature, like they were, you know, the, Thomas wrote this, or Mary wrote this, people who had actually been with Jesus, they were not written by someone who actually knew Jesus or followed Jesus personally. Third, they came on the scene several hundred years after the events that they speak of. And so they're not in the first century where it all actually happened. And, s- and fourth, that therefore they could not help to edify the Christian church. The Christian church already had its documents that they were using as these arose on the scene. And so they did not need these to help edify the Christian church. So here's the basic truth. For the first 300 years of the church, Christians did not have a bound book that they called the Bible. What they had were, were letters that had been written, and you know Paul would write a letter to, to the Galatians, and the Galatians then would copy that letter, and then they'd send it off onto the, the next church down the road, who then would copy that letter, and they would send it off down the road so the next church could copy it. They had autobiographies like Luke, who, who researched diligently the life of Jesus. And then he wrote, uh, as best he could, the, the exact, exact details of Jesus' life. So they had autobiographies of Jesus, they had letters to help edify them, but they didn't have a compiled, bound book for nearly 300 years after the church was formed. So what's fascinating is that Jesus' most devout followers never read a Bible. The first century church didn't have a Bible to read. They didn't own a Bible because there wasn't even a Bible to own. And even if there was a Bible, they couldn't read it because most of them couldn't read. And these men and women turned the world upside down. They flipped the world upside down. They righted the world, right? And the the reason we're here today in, in a place like this is because these people did what they did in the first century, but they did not have a Bible to guide them in doing so. The Bible was not compiled into a book until the fourth century when a council came together to state the authority of a variety of texts that had already been in circulation for the past 300 years. So there's a different kind of problem to the Bible that I want to address this morning. There's a different kind of uh, problem to the Bible that I want to address. And some of you grew up in churches that put the Bible at the very center of your faith. I was in a conversation this past week with a man who said um, that he, he grew up in a church where they... Um, would hold up the Bible as the very center of their faith, but not only the Bible, but a certain translation of the Bible, that if you were not reading the King James Version of the Bible, then you were not reading the Bible. And if you did not read the King James Version of the Bible, then you could not call yourself a Christian. And they held up the King James Version of the Bible as almost on the equal footing as with God. And I got a lot of thoughts on that, but I'm not going to go into them this morning. But a lot of people grew up maybe with idolizing the Bible, almost, and making the Bible equated with God. It's the same as God, and with all the Bible and a certain translation of the Bible, we just couldn't be Christian. And the reason so many people have staked the foundation of our faith on the Bible is because of a a very important but often misunderstood Reformation principle. I'm not going to go into Reformation history with you this morning, but you need to know in the 16th century, Reformers came along and they wanted to rescue Christianity from the hands of tradition and the hands of 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 a word of mouth kind of faith where the pope had the authority, tradition had the authority, and they said, no. The pope isn't the authoritative word of God, and, and tradition isn't the, the authoritative um, stance on where Christians should fall, but it's the Scripture. Scripture alone should inform us on, on how we are to live our life. Scripture alone has the final authority for the church in all things pertaining to the Christian life. And a lot of really good things happened because of this, but over time, the idea of sola scriptura, the idea that scripture is the final authority has been taken to mean that the Bible is the foundation and the epicenter of the Christian life. that The Bible is the very centerpiece of what it means to be Christian. But there is a difference between what is seen as an authority and what is the foundation for what we ought to base our faith on. But over time, these two ideas just kind of merged. And nobody intended this for happen, right? Nobody preached that this should happen. It just kind of happened. And many of us believe that the foundation of our faith is a Bible. And so as years went by, a lot of us, like, we felt guilty if we weren't in our Bible every single day. I felt that way for so many years of my life that I had a, I had a check mark next to my days, and I'd say, did I read the Bible today? Yes, but if I didn't, then I would feel guilty because I wasn't a good Christian. A lot of us felt that way. That there was overwhelming guilt if we did not get into the Bible every single day because for so many of us, we put the Bible at the very epicenter of what it meant to be a Christian. And then we would defend the Bible, because if it's not all true, then none of it can be true. And if can't all be trusted, then, then what happens to our faith, right? Our faith is just a house of cards, and so someone comes along and they say, well, you can't actually be, believe in a literal, literal creation, right? What about Noah? What about Jonah being swallowed up by a whale, right? All these things. And then we're like, I don't know. I don't know how to answer these people. And so they pull a card out, and all the thing just comes tumbling down. Because if Genesis isn't true, then is any of it true? And if that statement contradicts this statement or is inconsistent with that statement, then can of it be trusted? And if the Bible isn't true, then why would I depend on it and look to it for a source of faith or a source of anything for that matter? So for a moment, I want to look at what the first followers understood as the very center and epicenter of their faith, the foundation of their faith, the ones closest to the action. What was the foundation of their faith? And I hope this will provide us some assurance as we wrestle with this unique problem of the Bible this morning. We're going to pick up where the uh, Easter morning story left off. Jesus has just been raised from the dead, and the ju- disciples are in Jerusalem trying to figure out what's next. In the book of Acts, which is the Gospel of Luke, part 2, he details what happens to the church the first 30 years you know, after Jesus rose from the dead. And the first thing the disciples did was they wanted to replace Judas. Right? Judas had hung himself because he betrayed Judas or Jesus, and so they needed to replace Judas. Luke, the one who said that I've thoroughly investigated all of these things, tells us that this is how the conversation went. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us. Right? They're trying to figure out who they will pr- replace Judas with. And many people think that you know, when Jesus was walking on the earth, he just had these like, 12 little lemmings following him everywhere he went. But the reality is he had thousands of people traveling with him everywhere he went. There were thousands of people who were with him the whole time that he was on the scene. So we need to find someone who had been with him the whole time, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up with us. But we need an eyewitness of the whole adventure. But the most important qualification is we need someone who was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They weren't looking for a gifted speaker. They weren't looking for a gifted communicator. They weren't looking for a children's director or a worship leader. They were looking for someone who had seen Jesus rise from the dead and who had been with him throughout his whole ministry. So they select a guy named Matthias. This is seven weeks after the resurrection. This isn't seven years. This isn't 70 years. This is not 700 years. This is seven weeks after the resurrection. A wind blows through the city of Jerusalem. A powerful wind blows through the city of Jerusalem. Something marvelous begins to happen. All the disciples who are gathered there, it's not just 12, it's now about 100 people this core group of the Christian faith, this wind comes through and disturbs the whole city, and all of these people are filled with the spirit of God, and they 're able to do this really really unique and profound thing. They begin to speak in all these various languages. Luke tells us what they said when they heard this sound, the sound of the wind come through the city. a crowd came together in bewilderment what 's this sound you know what 's going on here we don 't know because each one heard their language being spoken, so people from all around the Mediterranean world have come to gather for a festival seven weeks after the resurrection of Jesus. And while they are there, right with all their various dialects, with all their various language, they begin to hear their own dialect and their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they ask, but aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? They shouldn't be able to speak our dialect. They shouldn't be able to speak our language. They are all here. They have a common language, and yet we hear our language being spoken. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language, they continued. Some, however, made fun of them, saying, well, they've just had too much wine. They're just drunk. They're just speaking gibberish. That's all they're doing. They're not actually speaking any common language. Well, why is this included in the Bible, you guys ask? Because it happened. It happened. This is why it's included in the Bible. Luke is just saying, hey, that's what they did. That's what they said. Okay, I'm going to put it in there. Peter, who is viewed as the leader of the Jesus followers, stands up and he gives a sermon. Because anytime uh, anytime Peter sees a crowd of people, he just feels compelled that he needs to preach. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha ha, right? The ice is broken. Okay, I've warmed up the crowd a little bit. Now I'm going to get to the point. I'm going to get to my message. Jesus of Nazareth. He's not talking to a bunch of people who have never heard about Jesus, right? These people were here at the Passover seven weeks ago. And when they left Passover, they were like, hey, you know what? We saw Jesus do some really cool things, but yeah, we also saw him hanging on that cross as we were getting into our car, right? And we were heading back to Rome, yeah. We saw Jesus hanging there. We thought he was done with. You know, why are people still talking about Jesus? They're probably perplexed. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to do miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you, right? This isn't a group who had never heard about it. They were there when he did these things. Jesus did these things among you. God did these things among you and through him, as you yourselves know. So I don't have to convince you that these things happened. You saw it or you know someone who saw it, right? You were eyewitnesses to these events. This isn't years later. This is weeks later. Don't you remember just two months ago how Jesus did those things? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, because some of you in that crowd, and you are the ones who are saying to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he references a Psalm of David that refers to this, and he said, you know what, we as good Jews, we should have known. We should have been aware, we should have known what God was talking about, and this should not have surprised us like it did. Then he concludes, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we, the band of Jesus' followers in their midst, are all witnesses of it. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. You need to change your mind about who Jesus is. This isn't repent like, um, you know, you need to turn from sin. It's you need to change your mind about who Jesus is. You need to think differently about who Jesus is. And then once you've identified with this this Jesus who was raised from the dead, you need to be baptized. And so here's my plug, as Emily mentioned. Guys, we're having a baptism on June 10th. We don't get baptisms very often here because we don't have a baptismal. But when we do, we celebrate, right? We have a party because baptism is so significant. And if you identify with Jesus and you have yet to be baptized, then you need to be baptized on June 10th. A public declaration that you are a Jesus follower. A public identification that I am a Jesus person. Let me know. Shoot me an email. We'll get in touch. It'll be a good time. The text says that actually many people came to faith that day. They embraced Jesus that day. 3,000, in fact, came to faith that day from what they have heard Peter saying. The point of all this is that the very first sermon ever preached was not about what Jesus taught. It was not about what Jesus said somewhere. It was about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It wasn't about something that Peter read in the Bible. It was about an event that he had experienced. So the next big event, Peter and John are out in the open walking around the streets of Jerusalem, and they're unafraid. They should be afraid because the last time that they walked around the open streets, they had a price on their head, and people were out to kill them. They were afraid at one point. But Peter and John go up to the temple to pray. And while they're there, they see a man who has been lame since birth. This man would have friends carrying him around to different parts of the city from time to time so he could beg and ask for money. Well, Peter and John don't have any money, and so instead they heal the man. They give him back his ability to walk. And so he stands up and he follows Peter and John inside of the temple. And as people see this man walking around, of course, this huge crowd begins to gather around them. Why does this surprise you, Peter says? You know, come on, we've we've seen Jesus do stuff like this all of the time. It shouldn't surprise you that this man is walking. This is the power of Jesus at work right here. And so Peter sees a crowd, he just can't resist, he begins to preach. You handed him over to be killed. You handed Jesus over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You all remember this, right? I mean, you were there, right? It's just seven weeks ago this happened. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You remember that day. You all gathered around, and and Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but you said, No, release to us Barabbas. And you said, Crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. You remember this. You were there. This didn't happen a long time ago. This happened just a couple of weeks ago. This isn't a story that you grew up hearing. Or you read about in a Bible somewhere. This happened just a couple of weeks ago. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. So what was the foundation of Peter's faith? You know, where did he get his hope? Where did he get his confidence? How is it now that he is walking around in the open, unafraid, when once he had a price on his head and he was cowering in fear for his life? The foundation of Peter's faith was not in something he had read. It was, in a, it was in an event that he experienced. It was in something that he had seen. And so here's the question if you're a Christian, what should be the foundation of your faith? What should be the foundation of your confidence? Where's the epicenter lie of it all? Peter would say, man, that's easy. It's not in a book somewhere, it's the resurrection of Jesus. So now they're at the temple. And the priests and the the temple guard, these are the people who had uh, taken Jesus away from the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Sadducees, this is like the Supreme Court, they're they're there in a meeting and they hear all this commotion taking place. And so they go out to see what's happened. They come up to Peter and John while they're speaking to the people. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. And so the next day, Peter and John are brought before the very people... Who persuaded Pilate to kill Jesus? Caiaphas is there even. He was the one who orchestrated the whole Jesus thing, who who got Judas to pay him off so that he could betray Jesus and get him get him alone. He was the one who convinced and leveraged his authority to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus. Everyone knows that this is not going to go well for Peter and John. These are the people who hated Jesus. This is not going to go well for Peter and John. And so they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? And see, the problem for Caiaphas in the court is that the guy who they had just healed is standing right there. He had come to the trial with them. And so you can't get around this one, you know? You, you, you can't you skirt your way around this. Most people had just passed by this guy's for years. Most people uh, maybe threw a couple dollars his way, but everybody recognized that this guy was lame yesterday, but now he is standing before us healed. And so Peter answers, Rulers and leaders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, I mean, Frank, come on up here, bud. walking up here. Let everybody see you. Look how great he's doing. He's doing awesome. And we're being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, you are the representatives, right? I mean, you can get the word out. If I tell you how he was healed, then I want you to tell everybody else. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom... God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, I mean, what do you mean by courage? What what do you you mean by by, by courage? Because Peter and John, when they were arrested, they should have been on their knees groveling and begging for mercy, and yet they're standing here with great confidence. And they realized That these were unschooled, ordinary men. I mean, they should have been intimidated by the powerful people in front of them. And yet they weren't. They had great courage as they stood before them. And why? Why did they have such great courage? Because when you lose your fear of death, you lose fear. When you lose your fear of death, all fear is gone. Right? They saw Jesus die. They saw him rise from the dead and ascend to the Father. So what should we fear? I mean, what power does death have? What else is there to fear? And so, of course, they had great courage. They were astonished, it says, and they took note that these people had been with Jesus. And so they can't punish the man because they just, you know, witnessed a verifiable miracle, and so they can't punish him, but they just simply tell him to stop. You know, just stop what you're doing. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and everything's going to be fine. It's going to be trouble if you continue to preach, so just stop. But Peter and John reply, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have, what, been taught as children? What we read in the Bible? No, what we have seen. The foundation of our faith is not in a book, it is in an event. A chapter later they are arrested again for doing the same thing and we're told that the leaders are jealous because the, these Galileans, right, these unschooled ordinary men have gathered a bigger crowd than they ever could. And Peter and John are back at the temple and they're preaching some more and so the soldiers go to them very diplomatically because they don't want to be stoned by the crowd that has gathered to hear them. And they tell them, guys, you need to go to your trial. You're late for your trial. Go to your trial. So Peter and John go in, and they're standing before the same group of people as they did last time, and they're threatened with death this time. We told you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. You're not stopping to preach, and so we're going to threaten you with death this time. Peter and the apostles answered, well, we must obey God rather than man. Right? Peter just can't help himself. He sees the crowd. He has to preach. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. Have I brought this up, by the way, that you are the ones who killed Jesus? Not like mankind killed Jesus, but you were the ones who killed him. And you killed him by hanging him on a cross. We are witnesses of these things. And when they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. But instead, they called the apostles in and they had them flogged. And so Peter and John would bear these marks forever. They would have the scars upon their backs from being flogged forever. This was meant to be a symbol of shame. It was meant that they were troublemakers. It was meant that they had been imprisoned, right? This is what it records. And their response, what does Peter and John say? Well, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And so Luke's writing all this stuff down. And he's like, man, I got to speed this story up, right? It's like so, so redundant. Day after day after day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so here's what I don't want you to miss this morning, that these, Peter and John, are our people. Like, we stand here in a church like today because they did what they did. This is why we are here. This is why Christianity survived the temple, because the temple was the first place persecution broke out. It was not the, the, the empire, although eventually that happened as well. When the Christian faith began, there was no book and there was no Bible. There was something else. There was a fearlessness and a boldness that came through witnessing event, the resurrection of Jesus. And when you have met that man who overcame death, then what is there to be afraid about? What is there to fear? You are then fearless as well. And the faith that this first followers of jesus embraced is exactly what i am hoping we as a church can embrace the the, the fearless faith the bold faith the courageous faith of peter and john and the other disciples who experienced the resurrection not committed their lives to checking off a box and said i read my bible today i did my due diligence i did my duty no they focused on the resurrection and that gave them a fearlessness that was unlike anything else that they ever could have asked for Because as valuable as the Bible it is, and yes, the, the Scripture is so valuable, right? It is not the epicenter of our faith. And so let people poke it, and let people prod it, and let people ask questions about it. Let them criticize it. Let them criticize us because of it. But there is a courage that is beyond that, and it is born in a confidence of God, because God has raised Jesus from the dead. See, the foundation of our faith is not a book. It's in an event. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christians eventually compiled the Bible. And so, if we were to ask Peter, Peter, where do you find your hope? Where do you find your courage? You know, where does this fearlessness come from? Where do you get it? He wouldn't quote you a verse from the Old Testament. He wouldn't quote you a verse at all. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say anything in regards to something that was written down. He'd say, That's easy. God raised Jesus from the dead. That is the epicenter of my faith. and If that is true, what else is there to fear? So the point of this morning is that if for whatever reason the Bible goes away, my friends, your faith doesn't have to go with it. Can the Bible be trusted? Absolutely. We'll actually talk about that more next week. What does science have to do with Scripture? You know, doesn't science disprove that the Bible was true? We'll talk about that next week. But I hope that we can be a church that is bold and fearless, not because we have a Scripture in our hand, but because we rest our assurance on the salvation offered us through a resurrected Lord. Let me pray for you this morning. Jesus in heaven, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. Yes, it is revealed to us in the Word of God. Yes, the Word of God has this incredible ability to pierce us, Father, and transform us, and I've experienced that personally, and so so many of us have. But how was it, Father, that there was a a courageous faith born without a text to birth it from? It is because the center of our faith must be in the resurrection of Jesus. That is where it begins, Father. That is where it will end. You are the beginning and the end, Father. And so thank you, Father, for how you've revealed yourself to us through Scripture, yes. How we have knowledge of this event through Scripture, yes, Father. But let us not get so hung up, Father, on making the Bible an idol that we forget what the Bible says, that you died and rose again. Help us to understand the word, Father, as we get into it. Give us wisdom as we try to figure out what you are calling us to do and how you are calling us to live, Father. But most importantly, this is a story about what you have done for us. And so, Father, thank you for what you have accomplished on our behalf. We could not do it on our own, but thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die, to rise again. And may that, then, be the foundation for which we live our life as Christians. We do pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.